So uh, I want to kick us off by talking about a little bit of, I guess, magical realism, uh, although this isn't necessarily his most romantic, r- romagical piece. <laughs> Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, right. Well, and, and maybe you might want to describe magical realism in 30 seconds, although anybody who's, who's watched the show Narcos um, got a lovely introduction to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like realism, but kind of magical. Uh, (laughs) I get back to this Aristotelian thing about the experience of reality is poetic, whereas reality itself is not necessarily so. Which one of these things is more real in terms of a story, the experience or the thing itself? Um, So, right, like when you first fall in love, it might feel like your head is is floating into the clouds, but your head is not actually floated into the clouds. In in magical realism, there might be like some, some for real floating happening or something like this. Right. Right. Yep. All right. So magical realism, context uh, provided. Uh, what's your point? So uh, this, is, uh, this is a little story I'm going to outline very briefly. And what's so neat about this is it's a story where the, the whole story is just the title. The title is Chronicle of a Death Foretold. There's a character, Santiago Nasser. He gets uh, sort of wrongly accused of violating the virginity of his neighbor's new bride, uh, her brothers, now that she's been rejected, then get butcher knives to go and kill this guy, Santiago. Um, mm-hmm. Over the course of the day, everybody finds out that they want to kill him, uh, except for him. And mm-hmm. and even and everyone knows, and, and some people even go and take the knives away from the brothers, and everybody then has this information and has to figure out what they want to do with this information. But for one or another or the other other reason, nobody tells Santiago about any of this. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he gets stabbed to death. Uh, and so what's interesting... So that seems is, like the title is kind of a little bit of a spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is a spoiler. Everyone knows this character is going to die. Um, not just the reader who knows because this is about a death foretold, but also every character in the story except for the person who's going to die. And, and even he finds out at a certain point and then starts reacting to it. Um, but mm-hmm. but what I want to get at here uh, to segue into today's topic is that when people know about a future event in a system, it changes how they act in that system. Mm-hmm. So that and yet it seems like in the case of uh, of a story, uh, was it history of a death foretold? Chronicle. It of seems a death like they foretold. actually a chronicle of a death foretold. It sounds like they, uh, they still didn't actually have the ability to alter the thing that they knew was going to happen, even if their behavior changed. Right, exactly. And then so you end up with like a whole set of issues that, one, mm-hmm. everyone can know a behavior is going to happen, and that won't necessarily change the fact of it happening. Two, mm-hmm. when there is a future uh, event in your life that everyone else knows about but you, that affects how people treat you. Um, such that your life mm. becomes a different thing than it was previously. Um, and three, sometimes this knowledge and the spreading of this knowledge can actually lead to the event, which is kind of one of the things that sort of happens in the story. Um, mm. mm-hmm. That if people hadn't have known about this, it may not have actually happened. Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. Okay, so it sounds to me like I... I've now been listening to our podcast long enough to know that um, anytime we're talking about something lo- future-looking things, it, we're talking about something that is predictive. So where does this become technologically related? Well, I suspect I might know. He says yeah. leadingly. <laughs> In fact, um, Facebook right now is doing the work of predicting suicides. Uh, in November, there was an NPR mm-hmm. article: uh, Facebook increasingly reliant on AI to predict suicide risk. And mm-hmm. in, in the way that Chronicle of a Death Foretold itself becomes, like, having that information circulate in that system becomes problema- problematically attached to the information itself. Um, mm-hmm. This is also a bit of a concern with Facebook. Once you have that knowledge, what do you do with it? Is the production of that knowledge itself 
part of the factors of its own ends. Um, mm-hmm. Does Facebook create a bit of a death foretold when it foretells death? Right. Right. Well, that's, oh, gosh, that's really interesting. And wow, we're, we're, um, we're treading on fairly um, sensitive territory. Um, the, the kind of the subject of suicide, and I, in some ways this is directly related to, um, I think some, maybe some past conversations we've had about how tech companies in general um, enter, enter spaces as organization or like with the intent to solve things. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I think with, and to give Facebook its due and to give kind of tech companies its due and hopefully to give you know, the work that I do as well, it's due, he says, um, uh, you know, with a certain amount of uh, caution. Um, you know, they're, they're often trying to solve really difficult things, and they're trying to do it in innovative ways and, and, um, and things that are, that are often um, haven't been solved in other ways. So, so there's, there's, I think, a real um, hopefulness and a real ambition and a real positive side to the ambition that tech companies have when they're trying to go into a space like this. Um, but boy, it's also a fraught space. And I think there is a danger in tech companies when they take on these big challenges, also not realizing some of the nuance and some of the real dangers of this um, space and where you might tread awry, perhaps. And much like a history of a death foretold, e- even in the world of prediction, you might very well end up um, maybe, maybe, maybe not only not resolving the issue, but maybe exacerbating it in different ways without being aware of, of the power that you wield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, an expert in suicide prevention, but I, I think that's I- exactly the sort of thin ice that we're walking on. Yeah. Well, to get into, yeah, I mean, so you referenced the NPR article. I think there's a, there's a few other um, examples. Um, I think actually one of the interesting things that, um, uh, you know, I think you, you see about the relationship between um, a, a channel like Facebook and social media in general and suicide um, uh, is the degree to which it's, it's such a double-edged sword around kind of this, this information sharing, right? On the one hand, Facebook has, the, has this um, unique vantage point into what's going on in people's lives, which they can use. And they are using, um, many cases, in concert with experts in the field of uh, suicide prevention to mm-hmm. really identify real red flags um, and to do some really important work in that area. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there's also ways in which there's things like when, when Facebook launched its kind of streaming, um, kind of live streaming capability, um, that came with people live, literally live streaming suicides, which is um, an immensely dangerous, an immensely problematic thing. Part of a major reason being is that there is actually a real contagion quality around suicide, meaning that. Um, suicides tend to beget other suicides, hmm. um, particularly ones that um, the, whether it's a, the wrong word is glamorization, but um, the widespread uh, communication about suicide, particularly if it's done in, in ways that seem to, uh, that go into real kind of gruesome and graphic details about it, actually tends to lead to spikes in, in suicide elsewhere, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It was a kind of so copycat a, uh, thing. Right, very much so. And it's, it's, it's a really complicated reason why I think suicide is, I think, really hard to explain. And, it's a, and in many cases, it's a taboo subject. Um, and so there's almost no way to talk about it um, in a way that you might think is common sense without sort of stepping awry in some ways. Um, even terms like saying that somebody committed suicide um, is actually... Um, a problematic way of talking about it. You should say someone who has who's died by suicide, um, uh, because committing suicide equates it to a criminal act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's there's all these possible ways of stepping wrong, um, and as we are wont to do when we are treading in territory that uh, is maybe a little bit of a minefield, uh, we're going to let someone else <laughs> maybe oh, lead our uh, <laughs> lead the conversation in this case. 
so I sat down with um, John Ackerman, Dr. John Ackerman, or John P. Ackerman, PhD. Um, but he is actually the, uh, the suicide prevention coordinator for the Center for Suicide Prevention and Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital in uh, Ohio. Joining us here today is, uh, is John Ackerman, PhD. <laughs> Dr. John Ackerman, do you prefer doctor? I prefer John. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he serves as the uh, suicide prevention coordinator for the Center for Suicide Prevention and Research, uh, acronym CSPR, at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He directs community, uh, school, and hospital efforts to educate others about the risks and warning signs of youth suicide. Uh, Dr. Ackerman has served as a clinical psychologist and child clinical psychology fellowship training director. That's a long one at NCH, uh, which is also the Nationwide Children's Hospital, just in case we're losing our acronyms, <laughs> acronyms uh, for Dr. Ackerman. Uh, Dr. Ackerman also serves on the Zero Suicide Implementation Team at NCH and is involved in training on suicide screening and risk assessment in primary care and community settings. Um, Dr. Ackerman has his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Delaware, studying uh, how early childhood adversity affects emotional and cognitive development in foster children. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Darian. And that, that intro is just a long way of saying I, I've spent a, a good bunch of time and probably too many years in school trying to study what, uh, what can impact a young child's development and how we can help those people who are most at risk um, be able to live meaningful lives and not yeah. that happen early in life, uh, you know, kind of be directing uh, all of that. So just trying to give them the ability to do that. Well, and you have a particular emphasis on, on youth, obviously, working at <laughs> Nationwide Children's Hospital, but um, also, I mean, your your kind of entire course of study and um, clinical work as well has been focused on youth. Is, is, that, um, is that because this is sort of the riskiest time or the time when there is kind of the greatest prevalence of this, um, uh, of suicide? Um, and maybe talk a little bit more about just the overall uh, I guess, trends related to suicide in, in this country and beyond, perhaps? Sure. That's a great question. Actually, it's um, for me, it, it is about intervening early and creating the most impact um, in a way that can affect a person's entire life. So actually, the riskiest periods of time for, uh, for severe mental health uh, concerns and uh, suicide in particular is is toward the uh, middle-aged years and, mm. toward, uh, and and elders because the, the rates are are higher in terms of people having access to lethal means, um, and and especially older white men are the highest risk group uh, for suicide. Some of those demographics are shifting a bit in terms of um, uh, females uh, catching up, not in a way that we're wanting them to, and uh, other risk factors. But from from my, I mean, again, I'm just looking to. Um, you know, help and empower people to uh, address these mental health concerns early, so that it doesn't unfold in a way that really can can have a lasting effect on life, and um, and that involves intervening with kids early. We don't, and, and not only intervening, but preventing. And and what we do at our Center for Suicide Prevention Research is make sure that we are giving individuals skills that. Um, are hopefully protective over the long term and, and giving them ways of identifying risk early so that those years, we know that most individuals begin to show signs of, um, of mental health distress in the teen years. So that is when things start to emerge, uh, but they're not getting help then. And often it's four, five, sometimes decades later before the types of supports available for mental health are actually provided and often in a crisis when we know, uh, just like anything preventatively, um, if you're addressing these things early, you're catching it earlier, you're cutting off the severe crises earlier, and um, and you're doing it in a broad way. So um, I, I, I work with kids, A, probably because I, I like them, and my maturity level is probably right around where they are. <laughs> and and also, I think that it can make a giant impact. And in this country, we, we, we wait for the crisis instead of addressing mm -hmm. it well before, whether it's being a homeowner or whether it's being um, a uh, uh, someone who's going to intervene in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a that's an interesting point. Is that one of the th when we think about this this concept of suicide prevention, we often think about this these acute symptoms and these acute um, stages of real crisis. Um, but it sounds like prevention in general is actually a longer term um, uh, kind of set of practices and kind of mental health um, foundations rather than necessarily. Um, 
stopping kind of a ticking bomb or something like that is absolutely i think we're learning more that you know kind of this genetic unfolding uh, of mental health for example isn't just a um you know in your in your dna you're destined to have a suicide attempt at age 28 or something like that that would be a really simplistic way of looking at it like the way a person is um you know engaged in their early family life the other events that unfold with peers and all these all these other risks and protective factors that we can build in a person's life Th- those things combine together to to either um uh, support a a person in healthy development or enhance risk so we know a lot of risk factors whether it be um uh, you know uh, struggling with gender identity or sexual orientation for example or being bullied or having other other types of risks um involved in one's life these can enhance risk but they're not predestined to uh, contribute to suicidal thoughts or, or behaviors later in life. Um, so mm. that message out. It's complex. It's always risk factors, but underlying mental health issues are typically involved. Well, and that seems like, well, I guess before we go into some of these kind of really examining sort of intervention and, and, and its relationship to what we're seeing happening in sort of the larger tech space in particular, um, can you give us a sense of just kind of what's the overall, um, I guess, the, the lay of the land right now, the current situation uh, around, I think, suicide in general in this country. Um, and we can speak to the country if you'd like to speak globally. You are certainly yeah, welcome to do so. We're not, we're not, we're not Americentric here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, worldwide, uh, annually, uh, we lose between 800,000 and a million people to suicide deaths. Um, so that's a, it's not a small number in in the United States um we have seen an increase um really of about almost 30% across most states in the past 15 years we mm-hmm. are currently at um suicides um at in the 2017 numbers were 47,000 individuals so it is a leading cause um of death um for across the lifespan behind things like unintentional injuries, car accidents, overdoses, things like that. And um, it's, it's it's the tenth leading cause of death for adults and the second leading cause of death for uh, 15 to 34-year-olds. Um, it's the third leading cause for uh, young children. Um, and, and we've seen a, a, an increase among 10 to 14-year-old girls where suicide rates have um, have tripled and we have seen in the past 15 years and we've seen just trends of self-harm and increase in in risk among young people uh things like anxiety and depression uh not only is being identified more readily which is not a terrible thing that we're doing a better job of picking up on this uh, when we weren't doing such a good job before but there do seem to be true increases based on the the data and based on surveys that are provided annually um mm. so these and, and doctors' visits and ED visits, um, there do seem to be a lot of data that this isn't just an artifact. It, it seems to be a very real increase in children's emotional distress, and the harder question is why and how. Mm-hmm. A couple in, interesting parts in terms of cu- culturally, um, uh, uh, racially, uh, is that we that, that suicide doesn't discriminate. Uh, it's something we want all. Uh, individuals of, of all backgrounds, um, regardless of religion, race, um, ethnicity, uh, other backgrounds, that 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 we know that it can be an issue within your community. Um, and so we we do know a, a recent finding is that actually um, African American kids under the age of 10 are actually um, double the risk of dying by suicide than um, than white children, which that that demographic is reversed when you look at teens, whereas um, and historically white teens have been twice as likely to die by suicide um, than mm. African American or, and Hispanic and, and other. Then, then we also know that Native American, uh, Indian, other other really disenfranchised um, uh, groups have, have been at high, the highest rates in our country. So um, Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are at high, high uh, rates of, of suicide among their young people. Um, and then uh, the other piece would be uh, transgender youth in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. Transgender individuals are very high risk. Again, not necessarily because there's something different with their brains, but the way our culture and the way they're uh, validated or more likely invalidated by their uh, families, friends, and social institutions make them at very high risk. LGBTQ groups uh, in general um, uh, 
at, at different rates, whether you pick that apart. But um, in general, that's some, uh, you know, those are individuals who really want to support and find ways. There's data that suggests if we can increase the support in their environments, whether it be family or schools, we actually have a really great opportunity to reduce their suicide risk. Um, so we need to get those messages out that really just validating a person for who they are not only <laughs> sounds good, but it is good for <laughs> mental health. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it seems like there are some implicit causes in those statistics of uh, of kind of what we're seeing happening um, kind of overall. It's like, well, if there's if there's poverty, disenfranchisement, um, lack of broader social support for one's identity, like there there those all those things seem to be contributing factors. But I I think overall, um, and as you said, like there's 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 this sort of like foundational life resources that people have or don't have that may also contribute in the long term um but but in these kind of these growing trends um do you have is there a is there a sense out there or sort of a growing consensus at all about kind of wh where this increase is coming from why we're seeing kind of this this ongoing um growth in people dying by suicide so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna waffle a little bit here because I I always listen for people's answers within our field for this question and what I've what I've what I've learned over hearing this question asked and answered about a thousand times at this point is that we just aren't there um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's frustrating and we need a way more research than we have a lot of the the, the findings that we have are correlational like there's mm -hmm. been some recent recent really good work that suggests that things like um, reduced physical activity, reduced connection, hopelessness, increased screen time and, and social media involvement can um, can contribute in, in ways that seem to parallel this increase in, um, in suicide risk among young people. So my best um, answer at this point is we know what tends to be associated with suicide risk among young people, and that is uh, disconnection, hopelessness, feeling like a burden, uh, feeling like there's no meaning in one's life, and then underlying mental health issues, um, other access to lethal means and suicide contagion, so mm -hmm. knowing of other people harming themselves. And so, uh, as we talked about before uh, offline here, um, what I'm what I'm most uh, concerned about is how much just general stimulation and how much access kids have to information that isn't really helpful or beneficial mm -hmm. to them, and then all of the connections that they feel like they have to maintain. I feel like people have to maintain an image, maintain connections, and they're also acutely aware because they're always connected of when they're not being kept in the loop, when they're left out, when they're being rejected, mm -hmm. and that constant 24-7 uh, need to manage all of these new, um, I think from the adult perspective, unanticipated changes, and we're and most of the adults and parents are not completely in touch um, mm -hmm. with that, which is not a new thing, right? Generally, right. <laughs> exactly. That sounds like a story as old as uh, parents having teenage children. Exactly. So there's, there's that. There's that. But also, kids are now they now have technology that constantly stimulates them. And then from just a brain perspective, I, I don't think we were um, meant to have constant stimulation. I don't think the brain is particularly effective or mentally healthy when it's being constantly um, bombarded with stimulation. So I think you're getting more distractibility, more anxiety, more agitation. And what, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people with a lot of distress, and they don't have the skills to manage that distress. So I think it's a two-way street. Kids aren't getting early development of skills that help regulate, um, but they're also not being put in a situation where regulation is even likely to happen very well mm -hmm. when you're getting all this information, all these expectations. But even even having said all that, most kids are not suicidal. So I, right. most kids do manage this milieu of um, stimulation adequately, but we are seeing a lot more kids struggle with it, and I think it's because um, the way we're preparing our kids to to meet this is not um, not well informed. We need to know a lot more about this. Well, so this is, I mean, in in short, it seems like, I mean, I, I, as you described, kind of some of these correlative uh, measures, the the term FOMO keeps. Yes. <laughs> uh, for those for those who don't know, the the parlance of the internet, uh, the the fear of missing out, which is. Uh, 
I, I think something that you we hear a lot about um, really being connected to kind of social media use, which is not just fear of missing out in terms of it seems like everybody else is out there doing stuff and you're not and you're not connected to them. But is also the idea that it's even calculable. I think um, you provided some resources um, before ta uh, before this, um, and one of those was looking at um, kind of how social media doesn't just provide all the stimulation, but it also provides something that feels very calculable and very quantifiable in terms of how it measures your relationships um, and how it almost creates this this seeming apples to apples comparison between you and everyone else about like oh, you have this many friends, you have this level of engagement. When you post, you get this many likes. Um, when you, you know, yeah. and this kind well, we of... We generally knew, us growing up, I grew, I'll speak for myself, you know, I knew, knew I wasn't the most popular kid, but I wasn't the least popular kid, and I was more, you know, kind of somewhere, and if I missed out on this party, I was like, oh, it stinks, I think there was something going on, but you mm -hmm. know it all. Like, it's all right there, and people do define themselves by numbers and likes and their self-image is being crafted and that's the other piece they're really um shaping what they want to be and not who they are and we do not know what this is going to do um, right. long term it's it's probably not good like it, <laughs> that that, <laughs> your, that your identity is being shaped by the perceptions of others is very concerning from a self-development standpoint um and i, I think we're going to um we're going to feel that and i think parents need to be very thoughtful about how, or having lots of conversations about what that means. I already do with the seven-year-old. I already mm -hmm. have that conversation. So it's, it's, um, and they're not using the phone that much. So it's, uh, or they don't have a phone. Or, but even the screen time and other people having access and older kids, we need to help shape that really early on. Mm -hmm. Well, so we've we've we brought up a lot of potential issues that already seem to be hinting at some some concerns related to. Uh, our use of technology, but let's go the other way since this is kind of what brought us into this conversation is this this point about possible preventative measures that are coming from um, the, the our, our our technology overlords um, <laughs> um, because because you know the, the the most recent conversations that we're seeing related to things like um, kind of Facebook using data to kind of act in a preventative way around suicide, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what you're just seeing kind of at, at, at kind of the, the ground level of how things like data, um, whether it's in concert with um, these kinds of media companies or whether it's um, kind of separate, is, is being used to kind of um, inform and maybe and support kind of the uh, kind of preventative measures? Yeah, so I think media social media here to stay and i, I don't want to seem again too too out of touch and say oh everyone has to stay on social media it's not going to mm -hmm. be healthy um we know that social media when it's used to help you know kind of uh, pursue a calls and to um and really mobilize people and connect people can be a, a wonderful tool and i think creating podcasts we, say uh, yeah exactly there's so many ways that i that i use technology for my own suicide prevention uh, mm -hmm. development, I have connected with sort of the world's leading experts through things like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, these types of things, uh, less LinkedIn, that's just a, you know, that's a thing, you just, but, but yeah, you really, uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's really able to increase access and increase connection, and the suicide prevention world is aware of that, there's actually a group called, um, social media suicide prevention that really um really I could bootstrap what they were doing and 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 do a lot of new things um here locally based on uh, you know the great work of people that I would have never have connected with mm -hmm. if it weren't if it weren't out there as a tool and and what you see is that there's so much data um out there that that people are providing um, about themselves that in some way can can be highly predictive of of their mental health state of their suicide risk and so mm -hmm. the companies like Facebook um, they whether it's through benign interest and and a you know benevolent desire to help others um, or whether it's to protect their brand they understand that people harming themselves and depicting this online and creating things like contagion or streaming their own death is a is a really awful thing and we know that that can contribute to um 
other people being at high risk for suicidal behavior. So what you've seen is these groups um, really grappling with it and actually legitimately reaching out to suicide prevention um, groups and organizations and thinking through this in a detailed way. Um, and it's not an easy equation to figure out because mm -hmm. ultimately you're, the, the tension is between using a person's personal data to help understand risk level and then making a decision of how proactive to be and how mm -hmm. to intervene when you know that likelihood is high. But high likelihood does not mean we've predicted that that person will definitely try to end their life. We're right. notoriously bad. Um, even clinicians, even the risk assessment process, is notoriously bad at predicting imminent risk, like, mm -hmm. like knowing who and when is going to engage in behavior, unless it's like moments, unless it's like within minutes, hours, we're mm -hmm. pretty good assessments for that. Um, but risk escalates so quickly and sometimes so um, unpredictably that it, we're not wonderful at that. So putting the putting this in the hands of big data um, has its pros and cons. I do think it's, it's admirable that we're going in that direction of using predictive information to help people. Um, well, I think that's one of the things that I think is sometimes misunderstood about how predictive data works. Um, you know, we I, I do a lot of work, and that's our that's what I do on a daily basis um, is is look at the applications for predictive data, uh, not in the field of of suicide prevention, obviously, but um, I think there's a misunderstanding about what it means for data to predict something and what and the reality of something actually happening, which is those are obviously correlated otherwise um <laughs> otherwise predictive yeah. data would yeah. not have a, have a point but it's it's also not a it's not a crystal ball right it's it's indicating there's an increased likelihood um there's a, a better chance of something happening or not happening right like um but any individual instances can still feel almost random I mean, an individual set of circumstances can can feel almost random. Right. You need to have like we're we're better at like using we there are people who have done some good formulas about looking retroactively about predicting risk and they can say oh we you know narrowed down these fields but we're not good at proactively predicting suicide risk um, and I know mm -hmm. people are like being male is a risk factor. Are you going mm -hmm. to hospitalize half of the country? No. Um, mm -hmm. You know and and so a lot of these factors, unfortunately, for suicide risk tend to be general mental health distress factors. But when mm -hmm. you start to pair them together and when they become of a certain intensity in a certain combination of risks um, uh, with a certain level of intent and severity, then you've got someone who's at high risk. Um, but it, it really is a difficult thing to um, be certain of. And then you get to the point of what is our level of intervention? And that mm -hmm. I will I'll let you steer that conversation as well. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's I mean, and before we get into like the, the how intervention works, I think there's you know you brought up some things um, prior to the call about like just just to give give people an idea about how these models might actually work. That there are some specific factors that um, are maybe even maybe even not totally intuitive until you really examine them that that actually factor into some of these models that are now being developed that are risk factors. Um, sort of the algorithmic uh, components. I think there is a, like the, the Tylenol, for example, being one of these like little like keywords that is actually weirdly is, is a, is a, is a weighted term in the world of sort of uh, data, you know, data oriented suicide uh, risk identification. And I love I love the fact that it's in, they're just using data, so they're not mm -hmm. you know they're they're really like crisis text line. They will analyze all of the keywords, and you have it. You have you know millions of messages, and you can filter through them and begin to prioritize using that data. Who is going to need the most timely help? How can you bump people to the front of the line who may be about to try to end their lives versus people who you know, are calling and are worried and they deserve attention, but, um, you know, your priority has to be to keep someone alive. So, mm -hmm. so the more information we have about um, when to intervene and when to get support imminently, like, again, uh, whether you're a friend, a colleague, a parent, if you know someone is saying, um, I'm saying goodbye and I'm going to give you information that's actionable, mm -hmm. um, the idea that we're trying to do something with that um, 
I think we have to pursue it. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't imagine having that in, a, a, an entity, a company, a set of people having that information and not um, providing that to to people right. who, can, who can provide support. But then um, that opens a whole ethical box of um, that that these companies may or may not be. Uh, have shown evidence that they're right. uh, the best people to make those decisions about uh, about people's personal data. So, well, there's this responsibility of knowing, right? Like now that you have it, I think you know one of the one of the things that you brought up. I mentioned in your in in a little bit more detail on this. You, there's a software. Was it Go Guardian? Yeah. Um, that's being used now by school systems. Um, and I would love for you to explain a little bit more about that. But basically, it creates. Um, it starts creating knowledge, but where there may not be the level of preparation to act on that knowledge in terms of possible risk. Yeah, there's um, uh, GoGuardian is an example of sort of this um, software that's used within school systems, whether it's on Chromebooks or other places where a student is interacting, uh, and and really it would only touch the work that they're doing for the school on that on that device, but uh, still we know that young people will disclose suicide risk in those types of venues and will write about it or post and it can kind of pull that information. And so you've got a student doing work or sharing information um, and that and there's algorithms that would then uh, pull all that background information and send it to someone in the district, which then creates its own um, set of Opportunities slash headaches. Uh, like it, you've got an opportunity to identify a young person at risk, which is one of the things we do with our school-based program all the time. So I am in favor of identifying those kids. It's better not to take that ostrich with your head in the sand uh, mm -hmm. approach. Um, but then who's responding? Um, and right. I was reading something about school counselors um, and how they're like, well, we're happy we have these systems, but if you really identify every kid who is depressed or experiencing thoughts of suicide, then that's all you're doing. And they really, most school counselors are not the first line of sort of mental health defense in a community. They are doing all kinds of things that mm -hmm. are, I think a lot of them wish they were doing more mental health work, but they have to, they have a lot of responsibilities. So who's who's getting called in the middle of the night? Are you going to call mm -hmm. the superintendent every night and at 3 right. a.m.? Uh, are you not going to respond till the morning? Like, w what are you doing with this information? And so you, uh, you've got folks who are prepared 24-7, like Crisis Text Line, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, Trevor Project, all these folks who can support, but um, you're putting school districts in this difficult spot of having to, to act, uh, you know, uh, respond to risk in a, in a way that's hard um, to, to sustain and to keep, right. these other, to keep these adults mentally healthy. Right. Well, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and I think that's that's a key point, which is, I mean, um, the intervention itself is that's that's a that's a fraught act, right? Particularly if you're going off of predictive data, it's one thing to say, you know, we have we have specific evidence that that something is in that somebody is in the in the act of of causing their own death, like that's that's you're almost responding at that point to just an emergency situation, but intervention in the course of somebody is showing severe warning signs, like it feels like there's the possibility of, of heightening the issue as much as there is of de-escalating. De yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a, that's a good point. And, and there are, there are things that when intervening is done ineffectively or without enough thought, um, it can enhance risk. So uh, the the most likely day a person is likely to kill themselves is the day after hospital discharge. Uh, mm. Second most likely is the second day after hospital discharge. So one of these things people all of assume like, oh, if I get to the right place, that's the best. You you need to actually intervene in a way that enhances meaning and connection and safety. And if it's just done as a you know a pro forma um, here, I'm going to check some boxes. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to make sure a person. Um, you know, we feel like we did the right thing. Um, people know that. Kids know that. Adults know that. Mm -hmm. uh, when you you know you spend three days not getting treatment and you know in a in a waiting area um, uh, for high risk, that's going to make you less likely to turn to medical professionals for support. Um, mm -hmm. And so, what we really want is more people trained to um, to listen to individuals' distress. And not in a clinic, not even a clinical way. We're, we train with 
uh, faith-based professionals, um, youth mentors, teachers, nurses, coaches. Uh, we want more people who can walk alongside a young person's distress, allow them to say, I'm not going to be scared when you say life is not good. Um, can, can you hear that? Um, and, and say, and then be able to ask a very specific question. Uh, have you thought about ending your life? Have you thought about suicide? Has it been on your mind? Because when kids hear that, there's a huge burden that's removed from them rather than the idea that if we talk to kids about suicide, we're going to make them more suicidal. That actually mm -hmm. the data that says that doesn't happen. Um, so we just we need to expand that network, and, and it's not a CYA process. You know, it's not cover your cover your rear, so to speak. We need we need people who are willing to get their hands dirty and have these talks. Um, you know, kind of like we we talked about that sometimes Midwesterners struggle with the, <laughs> with the <laughs> right, emotion right. and being in that in that presence, which they've got the real positive and that encouragement thing down, but the sometimes being there present with um, with understanding that these young people do have the capacity to want to die. Um, mm -hmm. And but but suicide is not about death; it's about mm. severe emotional pain and the inability to see a way out of that. Mm -hmm. People are particularly prone to not seeing, uh, to being constricted and not seeing that life will have its ups and downs. They're at the lowest point they've ever been, and they don't know it will get better. So adults often try to say, oh, it'll get better. It's just a breakup. They don't, they don't they, we have to understand they don't know that. They haven't mm -hmm. gone down and up before on that roller coaster. They've gone down, and that's where they are, and that's where they've been probably for a while, and we need to make sure that they are supported um, at that point. I think that's and it's something you brought up I think is really is a really interesting point which is it seems like there has to be some level I mean a significant level of trust established like they like people who whatever whatever um uh structure organizational structure they're interfacing with at that time whether it's a faith-based organization whether it's a uh, you know, a, a guidance counselor or a school or or whatever, there has to be substantial trust built into that. And um, it feels like there are there are some areas, particularly when you think about, um, I think there's been some instances of police trying to intervene um, in in black youth who are who are threatening to cause self harm, um, who just don't have trust with the police. And so yeah. there's as an intervention mechanism, it doesn't work. In fact, it, it, it exacerbates the situation. Um, and I think the the same thing may be true of set of our, our social media networks. Like um, to the degree that we trusted them, it feels like we've we've lost a bit of this. And yet they're they're also trying to serve this role a bit as kind of trusted partners um, for this kind of endeavor. And it feels like there's there needs to be some some shoring up of our. Uh, of our relationships there in order to kind of have them be a trusted collaborator in this. That's a fantastic point. I mean, in, in my end, it really, um, it really affects, I think our users willingness to, um, engage with, uh, with one of these, even the big social media partners. Like for example, each one of the platforms has a, um, I'm concerned about this person due to suicidal content. Um, we can, you know, there's buttons you, you report. I am actually, I don't love the fact that they say I'm reporting inappropriate content. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know it's inappropriate or this shouldn't be on my social media feed or something. It, it, this person is, you know, reporting distress that they don't want to be alive. I don't care how they do it. I'm, they're reaching out and they're giving us an opportunity to intervene. Mm -hmm. But, but what do, you know, I'll get a message back if I, if I report something that, you know, we have received your um, you know, we've received your comment. Um, I, I, you know, then you don't know what to do. And do we trust right. that they are going to do the right thing? I trust the I trust the people who worked with these organizations who provided them feedback. But just like um, the dear folks who worked with um, individuals who made 13 Reasons Why, it doesn't mean that will be well received and will be <laughs> enacted on in a way that's healthy for the community. So uh, when you've got competing motivations, it's it gets sticky. And, and, and so I think we're seeing that a lot with these um, larger social media groups, that, that when that trust erodes, it, it erodes for everyone, the, the users, the um, 
uh, you know, the, the folks who want to make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. You don't you don't know what at what level that's going to be done, and if they can deal with the sticky issues when they're struggling to deal with those sticky data issues. Yeah. Um, at the highest level. It sounds like you were not a fan of the show Thirteen Reasons Why. <laughs> that sounds like well, I mean, but it sounds like there's these narratives that are out there around this, and that the it's not easy necessarily to figure out what is the right way to approach these narratives, but there's definitely clearly maybe wrong ways to approach these narratives. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a good summary is that we have a, the, the challenge is a, I thought 13 reasons why as a show was, was done fairly well, was, you know, kind of well crafted if we're, if we're taking out the suicide content completely. And that's actually a problem. The fact that it was one of the most downloaded shows, they made it very appealing. The characters were relatable. It didn't seem like an after school special. And so like lots of kids, unfortunately, it's a, you know, it's a show geared towards adults, but it's all high schoolers and every middle schooler had watched it as well, which raised my alarm when we talked about the content because then they showed suicide depicted in a very graphic way. They had the the main character um, kind of exact revenge post-death um, in a way that was very teen fantasy, like, oh, you'll miss me when I'm gone, like, and I will, I will show you that you should suffer because I killed myself because of what you did to me. And the creators of the show in some thought that um, if we show suicide in such a graphic, uh, ugly way, that fewer people will um, view suicide as an option. And that is absolutely not how suicide contagion works. The more graphic and sensationalized you are and the more times you view it as a tool to um, you know, remove pain or to, to be a... Uh, something that solves your problems or affects others in a way that gets reinforced. That's that's really problematic. And what we saw was an increase in hospitalizations, uh, specifically uh, attributable to having watched that show as a trigger. We're not saying that show caused all suicides uh, of, of kids who watched it. There's a fraction of people, a small, hard-to-predict fraction of people, are highly vulnerable to contagion. And we saw an increase based on that population level. Like I couldn't say mm-hmm. Jane in Boston was going to go to the hospital. But we knew there was going to be an increase in suicide contagion. There was. It was frustrating. Um, I don't think the steps were enough. To You know, they put out some promotion. They said, oh, we're getting this conversation started. I'm like, well, would we poison the water in Flint, Michigan to show that uh, poor water health contributes to bad, <laughs> bad <laughs> outcomes? I, like, do we need to hurt people to mm-hmm. show that it's not a good thing and we need to talk about it? I, I thought there, that crossed an ethical line there, if, if that's what you're you're going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of pieces. We can talk about that. We need to talk about suicide more often. It can be done in a way that, that humanizes it, that makes sure people know it's there are risk factors that um, – we can identify there's things we can do to pre- pre- prevent in terms of building connection, increasing activity, uh, engaging in a lot of health-oriented behaviors, um, having discussions about it, uh, getting effective treatment that works, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, there's a, a, a intervention specific to suicide called CAMS. There's a lot of treatment that works. There's a lot of effective care that we're missing out on because we're we're providing the message like 13 Reasons Why it does that this is inevitable for certain people. If if you get so stressed that life doesn't seem worth living, you're probably going to try to kill yourself. Those things are all inaccurate, and they lose mm-hmm. the message. This is this is an overwhelming thing that everyone is going to experience, and it should more be a warning sign and a and a flag that that your emotional distress needs support. Not um, the only way to get out of this is to die. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where we need that narrative going. And we have lots of people who have gone through. Uh, uh, suicide attempts and live very healthy, meaningful lives. There's a great website called livethroughthis.org that has the narrative of almost 200 individuals and their their stories and and their risk and resilience and how they got to where they are and they they you know they often lead really meaningful lives. But this was part of their story. That's what mm-hmm. Suicide does not define people. It is a condition that they often struggle with and can. And we need to let people know there's hope and there's um, ways forward from this with the right connection. And that connection can happen online. So there's cool mm-hmm. communities going on, whether it be um, 
I think it's called Seven Cups of Tea. I might be mixing a couple of organizations, but there's online users who are willing to be there and listen to people. And connect. So that's a cool way that social media can be there for people. There's Facebook groups for suicide survivors. Um, so I've heard there's actually really effective um, text intervention that actually is a surprisingly uh, effective way of, of supporting people. Um, just like a, a, a text chat essentially on your phone is a uh, – I've, I've, I think there's a New Yorker piece on this a while back talking about that. Yeah, there's there's text options. People can have a safety plan, which is another really effective strategy mm-hmm. on their on an app on their phone that with with links that you can automatically click to kind of get those groups or to get mm-hmm. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or Text Line or these other groups that you can tailor. Uh, there's an app called My3, MY3, that has, you know, how do I keep myself safe in a crisis? So instead of judging people and telling them, Oh, like you're bad for having these thoughts. We say, no, it, this is a condition like many medical conditions that you need to be on the lookout for when things flare up, when your triggers. And here's what you do in a crisis. So we need a lot more of that um, yeah, ability to see this not as a um, a scary, awful, like this is something that's weird about you situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, this is, a, this is something that's serious. We, we can help you with this. Um, but it's not perfect. It's not rainbows and unicorns. This may be a chronic health condition. Right. Well, and this this gets us to our. So we have this point in the uh, in the show where we we get to our our totally reductive, possibly inappropriate for the subject um, <laughs> question, but we'll ask it anyway. Um, which is our apocalypse and utopia uh, question. <laughs> Um, but the you know the kind of the involvement of of big tech and I'll, I'll throw was it Netflix that did uh, 13 Reasons Why I'll I'll uh, I'll throw them in here as well but the involvement of kind of big tech in this world which feels on the one hand um, almost like they have to because they have the data but on the other hand it's 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 it's, it's fraught. I guess um, on this one to ten scale, one being uh, apocalypse, ten being utopia, um, there there maybe growing involvement uh, in this space. Um, kind of where do you where do you see that? Like how how, how would you rate that? Um, recognizing that this is maybe <laughs> maybe not the healthiest way of answering uh, of taking on yeah. a very complex subject. You mean the entire like the entirety of social media, or just the predictive elements? Uh... Ah, let's. I think I think we've got to take the good with the bad. So let's let's say let's say just big tech in the space of youth, young mental health, um, but then also the, in the intervention um, around uh, around possible crises. Gosh, it's it's sort of um, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's like it, it's got the the greatest possible upside and the biggest downside so it's on the it's on the i feel like it's on the extremes like a five it might it might boil down to a five right but not because it's in the middle <laughs> right, because. But yeah because it's not like a, a mild thing it's, it's either i mean you've got these elements whether it be things like live streaming self-harm and suicide which could have the worst possible um imitative effects and influence um, of of people who look up to individuals who are engaging in this behavior or, or view that. But it also, um, I, I think some of our most um, likely ways of intervening at a large scale and helping people at risk and getting the word out is through social media, as, as I've witnessed mm-hmm. that. So I know there's been um, uh, Tom Insel, the head of, uh, he was uh, head of NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, and then he was at Google for a while, and he's um, he's, he's got another project going. But really, saw such value in being able to look at this data and and be able to pull people together and that there's people like people in um you know in these remote areas of our country and rural areas and in Africa and and they all have access so if we can harness the tool much better than we have which I'm not like I'm only a little optimistic regarding <laughs> it so that's where my like uh, hope starts to waver is mm-hmm. like what have we done to show that we're going to harness this information, but if we can help people manage their online behavior more effectively and give people tools without completely policing it, because we know that won't work, um, then we're, we've got an opportunity to intervene. So I, I think I'm 
ultimately, um, I think I have to be hopeful uh, <laughs> and, and not go the apocalypse route. Probably my nature and what I do. <laughs> um, and, and I think it'll, you know, things will, things, interventions and opportunities will continue to present themselves. And I, I'm watching that happen both on the ground at the hospital and among suicide prevention groups. And um, even the companies themselves are recognizing it a little slower. I think. Mm-hmm. We've seen you know, screen time and other things undermine the health of youth um, in ways that were probably predictable. Uh, mm-hmm. They haven't really stepped up until there's been an outcry. So I, I think there just has to be more of an outcry and um, people getting together to say what's healthy, but then the opportunity to get data in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you said, I you had mentioned the idea is like, it, are these groups trying to provide an intervention for for symptoms they've exacerbated, and I would say yes. <laughs> I would say yes. That that's part of the equation is it's here, and they're trying to um, create a, a system just like gaming. Gaming is highly reinforcing. It's all built on principles of how to keep people there and online <laughs> and moving forward and sticking with that product. So you're asking companies to um, ask people to detach in healthy ways and. Mm-hmm. I don't see that happening, right? They're right. Be like, oh, you know what? We should. What would be most healthy for these young people is to take breaks from our products that are making us money for long periods of time. Right. Right. To sort of mindfully engage in their day to day, and maybe spend forty five minutes on our platform and then leave. Right. That's <laughs> right. Healthy. Like that's probably what's showing yeah. healthy. Really. So yeah, it's. I'd say it's. Yeah, five, but not because it's neither apocalypse or hope. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great answer. Well, John, thank you so much for uh for for coming to talk today. This is uh I I think this is exactly the kind of mature discourse that you cannot count on from either Toby or myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's okay. awesome. I appreciate you having me. It was, it was really a really great chatting about this tough uh these tough topics, but you giving it a platform and, and talking about it is is the kind of steps that we need. So I do appreciate being here, and uh, always great to connect with you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. That's, uh, that was heavy. That's, uh... Yeah. Wow. I mean, I was struck by the fact that um, we, might, we might have actually uh, taken something seriously for, uh, for once in actually that conversation. I think it helps to actually have people know what they're talking about. I was about to say this is this is what we really miss on this podcast is people knowing what they're talking Expertise. about. Expertise, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, we have had many an expert on here. It's just not hosted by experts. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. When I say we, I don't mean all of our uh, brilliant guests that we've had on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't tar with a broad brush there. No, we're getting very <laughs> just us. Um, so yeah, so I look. I I felt like um, just thinking about this. It's such a, a difficult question. You know, the apocalypse utopia question. It's not only such a difficult, such a useless question at times, but um, also difficult. Um, I think this 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 real question around um, is is social media helping or hurting? The idea of having kind of real insights into people's um, kind of psychological state might be really important Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time there's a little bit of a you know a little bit of a heisenberg uncertainty principle thing going on here where facebook might also be causing that state in the process of um accessing these kinds of this information about someone's psychological state yeah um so yeah it's hard to i i don't know that i come out of this discussion with kind of greater I mean, I certainly come up with greater clarity about the subject itself, about but whether kind of greater clarity about where I stand on whether this is a, you know, whether this is a good thing or not. I, so following my, my interview with John, he sent me um, a piece uh, that he sort of said, oh, I wish I'd, I'd read this beforehand, but he sent me a piece, you know, really going into a few more details. It wasn't, it didn't change anything we talked about, but he sent a piece that was going into a few more details about kind of the the real predictive analytics work that's being done right now, and that it is really um, promising um, in, in helping support intervention in a subject that is, I think, really hard to, or in an area that is really hard to um, kind of access when people are at kind of real points of crisis. 
So yeah. a, a lot of this work is, is in fact really promising and, and I don't think anybody is suggesting that you shouldn't do it or we shouldn't work in this area. I think the, the subject is maybe more nuanced than that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and I think going back to our, our really good couple of episodes on, on tech paternalism, there is, there, there is a danger in entering these communities, especially if, uh, and, and I mean, suicide, it's, it's not a community, <laughs> although um, per, perhaps people... Right, but per, the prevention of suicide is certainly, um, people who are focused in that area, I would say that it actually, it's a pretty tight, um, I would say it's a pretty tight-knit community, one that is really focused on, like it's heavily focused on kind of ethically engaging with the subject. So, so yes, the community of people who, who die by suicide is, is, is less, is obviously a very diverse group of people, but yeah, the underlying, um, pop, you know, the underlying um, group of people who are really working in this, I think that there is a lot of um, information sharing and a real cohesiveness to it. So should, should we even do, should we do an apocalypse utopia about like uh, Facebook uh, getting in on algorithms of suicide prevention apocalypse or utopia? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's worth doing. I mean, I think it's worth kind of um, chiming in. Although I, like for me personally, I think I end up a lot where John is and not just to, not just to, to ride the coattails of the expert. Um, but I think it's because, I mean, his answer I thought was, was right. It's kind of where I am as well, where you end up in sort of the middle ground of like a five, but not because it's kind of like meh, whatever. It's more like there's such positive things that are out there in terms of really being able to identify distress and crisis um, and really engage with people at those points. But also it's, it's, it's not only that the, there's real privacy considerations, it's also that the systems themselves might be very well kind of causal in these points of crisis and um, you know, these upticks in, in suicide rates and things like that. I, I might tip towards a, a six. Mm. Um, and this is my thinking. You know, the, sometimes I think back to the olden days. Um, I remember when I got to college, the big thing was AOL Instant Messenger. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that wasn't so long ago. You know, I got to college sixteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, it's not historically that's not much. You know. I mean, in like in like geological time. Well, I mean, even historical time. I mean, if you say. <laughs> Right. You know, just in terms of like large market economic movements, like national orders, right. that kind of stuff. Not not an enormous amount has changed in the last 16 years. Right. Uh, and, and this is the thing I thought about because Facebook's been doing this like look at you 10 years ago versus look at you now, like a kind of comparison. Right. Yep. And I find it really boring. I'm like, most people look basically what they look like 10 years ago unless they grew facial right, hair. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. It's Whoa. like, this is, this is a really a boring. Now. Yeah, it's a really boring right. comparison. Um, right. And part of it, I don't, it's my, I, this might be ridiculous. I don't think Facebook is going to last. Um, mm. Certainly not in its current form. I, I think it's going to splinter apart. Wow, wow. You heard it, you heard it here, folks. That is yeah, a, uh, man, it's super hot that, take. That is a hot take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. And, and my sense is when, when Facebook goes belly up or splits apart into a bunch of smaller pieces or, or however this thing happens, because um, we're really just talking about a, like a 10-year run where mm-hmm. Facebook has sort of exploded outwards into the, utili- the, the sort of vague utility that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when it goes, I, I feel like it will still leave behind all this usable data, you know? Mm-hmm. Like... Mm-hmm. The, the things that suicide prevention centers can learn from all this will still be things they're learning from. It's almost like they've created an archive that, yeah. that can be used to understand people in this particular historical era uh, and this kind of thing. You know, like, because to go more dystopian, I, I would think Facebook would become more powerful and then make mistakes and hurt people it didn't intend to hurt or something. But I, actually, I just don't think Facebook is going to last. And... Mm. Uh, Maybe the, the, the sort of rich soil that it decomposes into might be really good. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think I have, I'm less um, certain that, you know, once this, once this 
I guess, blessing and curse of social sharing has come out of the um, kind of come out of the, the the bottle. I'm not sure that that goes back in. So whether whether it's Facebook or whether it's somebody else, you know, I think we have such a need to share and to reach out and to kind of cast this information out into the void and like try to connect with people through these channels. Whether it's Facebook or somebody else, I don't see us necessarily abandoning these practices and that these, because Facebook isn't successful because it's malevolent, it's successful because it's meeting this kind of urgent need that people have to communicate. Um, and it's why, you know, whether it's Facebook, you know, people aren't talking about how, whether whether social sharing has jumped the shark. They might say, well, Facebook is, and now pa Facebook's moved on, and now everyone's going into Insta. <laughs> which is also owned by which Facebook. Also owned by Facebook. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or the next thing is Snap, or the next thing is, you know, whatever it is. There's always a next thing. It isn't like people are stopping this. But I also agree that I think that there's, there's a way in which we can understand it, and there's a way in which we can engage with these platforms. And I think when we, when we do broaden our time horizons, I think we do we we do have the option of ending up in a healthier space, um, and maybe creating a healthier sharing environment, which I think even Facebook has been trying to do a bit. It's really tried to even this attempt is to try you know, originally started out as a way to respond to what was a crisis in Facebook, which was to respond to like the live streaming of suicides, which was mm -hmm. you know absolutely a, even if it was a reputational crisis, Facebook did respond to it. That's part of what motivated this thing, this effort. Um, so I do think that there are, that over time, these practices, we, d we are getting a lot of data and knowledge, I think, will make us better at both crafting what these platforms act like, but also how to use the data that's coming from them or in other channels to, to intervene. So, no, you know what? I'm with you. We don't, have, we, don't, we, don't work, we don't work in suicide prevention on a daily basis. We get to be a little bit less... Uh, less um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic about it. Um, I'm sure people who work in it, maybe uh, it can feel a bit of a, a storm that they're in right now. Well, brilliant. I, I think we've yeah. got it. And uh, Awesome. I've, that is... uh, I'm going to run off and teach a class. Yeah, well, special thanks to, to John. Um, join us uh, in the next couple of weeks. We have a, a, a new guest. Uh, we have a guest coming on, uh, Marley Jane Ward, from the, uh, the host of the... Um, the podcast uh, Catastropod, uh, which we're excited to talk about the um, whether the apocalypse is uh, apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So exciting. Look forward to that. Um, rate us on your 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 podcast app of choice. Um, and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing uh, seeing you when we see you. Yeah, or your rating at the very least, as we will likely know. At least your rating you. and your 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 <laughs> complimentary comment. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, uh, have fun teaching your class, and we will talk uh, soon. All right. Love you, ma'am. I love you. Bye. Bye.